Thank you. Good morning. Thank you for coming and for having me here. It is an honor and a delight. And I have to say that um, I was sitting there as Catherine was reading her introduction and thinking about um, what I had planned to begin with today because of the theme of your conference and realizing that I had forgotten one of the things that I wanted to read. Um, I I brought with me my two most recent books that I plan to read from, but I forgot to put in my bag uh, my first book that I think has a poem in it that really gets at the, the theme of ordinary people and extraordinary change. Often when I read this poem, I, that's sort of what I say. I talk about the everyday acts of resistance that ordinary people do that create change for us. My grandmother was one of those people. So I had to try to write the poem down quickly in my notebook because I thought I could try to recite it, but my mind isn't as sharp as, you know, say 20 years ago. So I'm going to I think I, I think I wrote all the words right, and I'm going to read um, first to you a poem called Drapery Factory, Gulfport, Mississippi, 1956. She made the trip daily, though later she would not remember how far to tell the grandchildren. Better that way. She could keep those miles a secret and her black face and black hands and the pink bottoms of her black feet a minor inconvenience. She does remember the men she worked for and that often she sat side by side with white women, all of them bent over, pushing into the hum of the machines, their right calves tensed against the pedals. But then she laughs when she recalls the soiled cotex she saved, stuffed into a bag in her purse, and Adam's look on one white man's face, his hand deep in knowledge. I realize now that I forgot an entire stanza. <laughs> she does remember the men she worked for and that often she sat side by side with white women, all of them bent over, pushing into the hum of the machines, their right calves tensed against the pedals. I still can't get it. Well, I'll tell you what it is. It's a stanza about uh, all the black women having to file out and have their purses checked. So my grandmother uh, and some women who worked in the factory decided uh, that they would do something to change this. That's why there were soiled cotex in her pocketbook. So you see, that stanza was so crucial. <laughs> he never checked their purses again. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> anyway, um, in my work, I, I, I attempt to chart the intersections between public and personal history, the contentions erasures and misapprehensions of received knowledge of our shared past. So today I'm going to read from and talk about um, some things from my most recent collections, Native Guard and Thrall. Now, Native Guard is a book that's steeped in the history of Mississippi, its violent and troubled past and its terrible beauty. I do a good deal of research to write poems, and I knew I had to journey back to my native state to write this book. 
I often think about Heraclitus's axiom, geography is fate. And so for me, the fate of being born in Mississippi, uh, the place that has, uh, not unlike uh, the way that Auden described Yeats in his memorial, Mad Ireland hurt you into poetry, Mad Mississippi hurt me into poetry. One of the first places that I visited on my journey back to Mississippi to reconsider it um, and to reconsider its history was to visit various uh, historical sites, um, museums, archives, the battlefield in Vicksburg, and also some of the great old mansions that have now become uh, bed and breakfast hotels, and these were the, the mansions that not long uh, after the Civil War and certainly in the 20s um, opened their doors to have annual pilgrimages so that people primarily from the north but also around the south could come and get a taste of the Old South. Uh, they'd be decked out in flowers and hoop skirts to remind us of that past. So I called um, when I wanted to make this trip and, and tried to book a room in in uh, Cedar Grove Mansion. And she was describing the different rooms to me. There was actually a Sherman's room. I didn't opt for that one. But she told me, she told me that there was a nice carriage house in the back that had been renovated, uh, and I could uh, room over there. And I said, no, I, I really want a room in the big house. <laughs> Pilgrimage, Vicksburg, Mississippi. Here, the Mississippi carved its mud-dark path a graveyard for skeletons of sunken riverboats. Here, the river changed its course, turning away from the city as one turns, forgetting from the past. The abandoned bluffs, land sloping up above the river's bend, where now the Yazoo fills the Mississippi's empty bed. Here, the dead stand up in stone, white marble on Confederate Avenue. I stand on ground once hollowed by a web of caves. They must have seemed like catacombs in 1863 to the woman sitting in her parlor, candle lit underground. I can see her listening to shells explode, writing herself into history, asking what is to become of all the living things in this place. This whole city is a grave. Every spring, pilgrimage, the living come to mingle with the dead, brush against their cold shoulders in the long hallways, listen all night to their silence and indifference, relive their dying on the green battlefield. At the museum, we marvel at their clothes, preserved under glass, so much smaller than our own, as if those who wore them were only children. We sleep in their beds, the old mansions hunkered on the bluffs, draped in flowers, funereal, a blur of petals against the river's gray. The brochure in my room calls this living history. The brass plate on the door reads Prissy's Room. A window frames the river's crawl toward the gulf. In my dream, the ghost of history lies down beside me, rolls over, pins me beneath a heavy arm. This is the thing that I feel like I learned when I went there. You get a ghost visitation like that. Um, when you realize in some ways that history is intimate and that if you're going to investigate it, it might mean just lying down with it 
as I felt that I did in that dream. When I first went to Vicksburg, my plan was to write a poem called The Occupied City because uh, after Vicksburg fell to the Union, they sent 5,000 U.S. colored troops there. Just imagine what that felt like to people in Vicksburg. I chuckle when I think of it. Now, because, because of that, uh, you know, uh, people in Vicksburg were angry and did not celebrate uh, the 4th of July for many years. So uh, following that, uh, following the end of the Civil War, uh, the state of Mississippi celebrated the first Confederate Memorial Day, uh, April 26, 1866. I was born exactly 100 years to the day. Call me Dixie, if you will. <laughs> Also, uh, 10 years uh, after that, 10 years, uh, um, April 26, 1876, the, um, the river turned away, and so the, the, the Army uh, Corps of Engineers had to uh, reroute the Yazoo River so that Vicksburg would not be left high and dry. The book really began, however, in trying to tell the story of the Louisiana Native Guards. And the Louisiana Native Guards were the, among the first officially sanctioned regiments of African-American Union soldiers in the Civil War. It was Lincoln's um, uh, preliminary Emancipation Proclamation in 1862 that allowed for the recruitment of these black soldiers. And so in September, October, and November of 1862, these regiments, the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Regiments of the Native Guards were mustered into service. The 2nd Regiment was stationed just off the coast of my hometown on a barrier island called Ship Island. And I used to go out to that island with my grandmother every 4th of July and take the tour of the fort to see uh, for example, the plaque um, in the doorway of the fort in the, in the entry hall listing all the names of the Confederate dead, but no names of the Union soldiers, the black soldiers who had been stationed there or who died there. This was the part of the story left out by the park ranger. And unless you knew to ask it, this is not the narrative of Ship Island. I was with my grandmother um, one Sunday. Uh, I just started a job at Auburn, and I drove down to take her to lunch, and I was talking about an assignment, a history assignment that I was going to give my students, you know, sort of a way of looking at monuments, um, the, the way that the landscape is marked with certain stories and not with other stories. Uh, there's a, a monument in the center of town of, of Auburn talking about how the city was founded, and it says something like, after the Indians left as if they just woke up one morning and said, man, this place is a drag, let's move west. <laughs> so I was talking about this kind of assignment where you try to read behind the monument to tell a larger story of our shared history as Americans. Um, and I was also talking about how, you know, history is personal. We, we have history within our family that connects to these larger public histories. And I, I told my grandmother uh, that I was going to get them to do this assignment where they talked about when someone in their family met somebody famous. And I was going to do it, too, because I remember my grandmother's stories about um, uh, how her brother, who was a, a bellhop at a hotel on the beach, met and shook Al Capone's hand when Al Capone used to come down to do some offshore gambling. Now, in my grandmother's memory, that offshore gambling happened at Ship Island. It was probably a barrier island that no longer exists. But... That was the story of Ship Island that I knew. And as I was telling my mother this, someone, a woman, was eavesdropping the entire time. I think she must have been a librarian because she leaned over to me after that and she said, I think there's something else you need to know about Ship Island. And she told me that story. And I immediately went to the Gulfport Public Library 
to do some research about the Native Guards. I found a dissertation in there that they'd public that they'd kept bound that had a couple of lines mentioning the Native Guards. And I mentioned that also to say that that Gulfport main branch of the public library where I first began writing this book was destroyed in Hurricane Katrina. And I think they're not going to rebuild that. In the Native Guard poem, um, the, uh, I, I mentioned the white colonel, Nathan W. Daniels, who was stationed there. Um, he wrote a, in, a, in a journal, and his journal was very useful in, in helping me imagine what was going on in the island. Um, the, the journal was published, and the title that, that was given to it was Thank God My Regiment, an African One. He was really pleased to be working with the Native Guards there. Um, there was also on the island a Major Dumas, who had been a free man of color, who had inherited slaves from his white planter father when his father died. Of course, it was illegal to manumit in Louisiana at the time. And so when the proclamation came down, the, the preliminary one, he joined the Native Guards and freed his slaves and encouraged those men of age to join as well. In the poem, I imagine a literate black soldier who was given the Army's task of writing letters to the families of the deceased soldiers. He begins also to write for white, invalid, or illiterate Confederate soldiers and to contemplate the meaning of his experience and how the history he is making will be remembered. The poem has an epigraph from Frederick Douglass that reads, if this war is to be forgotten, I ask in the name of all things sacred, what shall men remember? Native Guard, November 1862. Truth be told, I do not want to forget anything of my former life, the landscape song of bondage dirge in the river's throat where it churns into the gulf, wind in trees choked with vines. I thought to carry with me want of freedom, though I had been freed, remembrance, not constant recollection. Yes, I was born a slave at harvest time in the parish of Ascension. I've reached 33 with history of one younger inscribed upon my back. I now use ink to keep record, a closed book, not the lure of memory, flawed, changeful, that dulls the lash for the master, sharpens it for the slave. December, 1862. For the slave, having a master sharpens the bend into work, the way the sergeant moves us now to perfect battalion drill, dress parade. Still, we're called supply units, not infantry, and so we dig trenches, haul burdens for the army no less heavy than before. I heard the colonel call it nigger work. Half rations make our work familiar still. We take those things we need from the Confederates' abandoned homes. Salt, sugar, even this journal, near full with someone else's words, overlapped now, cross-hatched beneath mine, on every page, his story intersecting with my own. January, 1863. Oh, how history intersects my own birth upon a ship called the Northern Star, and I'm delivered into a new life. Fort Massachusetts, a great irony, both path and destination of freedom I'd not dared to travel. 
Here, now, I walk ankle-deep in sand, fly-bitten, nearly smothered by heat, and yet I can look out upon the gulf and see the surf breaking, tossing the ships, the great gunboats bobbing on the water. And are we not the same, slaves in the hands of the master, destiny, night sky red with the promise of fortune, dawn pink as new flesh, healing, unfettered. January, 1863. Today, dawn red as warning, unfettered supplies stacked on the beach at our landing, washed away in the storm that rose too fast, caught us unprepared. Later, as we worked, I joined in the low singing someone raised to pace us and felt a bond in labor I had not known. It was then a dark man removed his shirt, revealed the scars, cross-hatched like the lines in this journal, on his back. It was he who remarked at how the ropes cracked like whips on the sand, made us take note of the wild dance of a tent loosed by wind. We watched and learned, like any shrewd master, we know now to tie down what we will keep. February 1863. We know it is our duty now to keep white men as prisoners, rebel soldiers, would-be masters. We're all bondsmen here, each to the other. Freedom has gotten them captivity, for us a conscription we have chosen, jailers to those who still would have us slaves. They are cautious, dreading the sight of us. Some neither read nor write, are laid too low, and have few words to send, but those I give them. Still, they are wary of a Negro writing, taking down letters. X binds them to the page, a mute symbol like the cross on a grave. I suspect they fear I'll listen, put something else down in ink. March 1863. I listen, put down in ink what I know they labor to say between silences too big for words. Worry for beloveds. My dearest, how are you getting along? What has become of their small plots of land? Did you harvest enough food to put by? They long for the comfort of former lives. I see you as you were, waving goodbye. Some send photographs, a likeness in case the body can't return. Others dictate harsh facts of this war. The hot air carries the stench of limbs, rotten in the bone pit. Flies swarm, a black cloud. We hunger, grow weak. When men die, we eat their share of hardtack. April, 1863. When men die, we eat their share of hardtack, trying not to recall their hollow sockets, the worm stitch of their cheeks. Today we buried the last of our dead from Pascagoula, and those who died retreating to our ship, white sailors in blue firing upon us as if we were the enemy. I'd thought the fighting over, then watched a man fall beside me, knees first as in prayer, then another, his arms outstretched as if borne upon the cross. Smoke that rose from each gun seemed a soul departing. The colonel said, an unfortunate incident, said, their name shall deck the page of history. June, 1863. 
1863. Some name shall deck the page of history as it is written on stone. Some will not. Yesterday, word came of colored troops dead on the battlefield at Port Hudson. How General Banks was heard to say, I have no dead there, and left them unclaimed. Last night, I dreamt their eyes still open, dim, clouded as the eyes of fish washed ashore, yet fixed, staring back at me. Still more come today, eager to enlist, their bodies, haggard faces, gaunt limbs, bring news of the mainland. Starved, they suffer like our prisoners. Dying, they plead for what we do not have to give. Death makes equals of us all, a fair master. August, 1864. Dumas was a fair master to us all. He taught me to read and write. I was a man-servant, if not a man. At my work, I studied natural things, all manner of plants, birds I draw now in my book, wren, willet, egret, loon. Tending the gardens, I thought only to study live things, thought never to know so much about the dead. Now I tend ship island graves, mounds like dunes that shift and disappear. I record names, send home simple notes, not much more than how and when, an official duty. I'm told it's best to spare most detail, but I know there are things which must be accounted for. 1865 these are things which must be accounted for. Slaughter under the white flag of surrender, black massacre at Fort Pillow, our new name, the Corps d'Afrique, words that take the native from our claim, mossbacks and freedmen, exiles in their own homeland, the disease, the maimed, every lost limb and what remains, phantom ache, memory haunting, an empty sleeve, the hog eaten at Gettysburg, unmarked, in their graves, all the dead letters, unanswered, untold stories of those that time will render mute. Beneath battlefields, green again, the dead molder, a scaffolding of bone we tread upon, forgetting, truth be told. Thank you. During the Civil War, the word miscegenation entered the American lexicon as part of a pamphlet created as a hoax by a couple of journalists to scare Americans against reelecting President Lincoln. Even though intermarriage was already prohibited in the laws of many states, they wanted to present the possibility of a nation with rampant amalgamation as a reason to fear Lincoln again in office. My parents had to um, break some of those laws when they got married. Um, in, and one of the things that I always like to point out when I read this poem is that it's not um, really about so distant history. Uh, right here in Alabama in the mid-'90s, they finally voted whether or not to remove the anti-miscegenation laws from the books. And about 42 percent of the population voted to keep them so that at least symbolically it could be said that parents like mine couldn't be married legally and people like me born legally in the state.
And this was even after, you know, loving versus the state of Virginia. I mean, you can't get anything better than that, right? Loving, and loving wins. Miscegenation. In 1965, my parents broke two laws of Mississippi. They went to Ohio to marry, returned to Mississippi. They crossed the river into Cincinnati, a city whose name begins with a sound like sin, the sound of wrong, miss in Mississippi. A year later, they moved to Canada, followed a route the same as slaves, the train slicing the white glaze of winter, leaving Mississippi. Faulkner's Joe Christmas was born in winter, like Jesus, given his name for the day he was left at the orphanage, his race unknown in Mississippi. My father was reading War and Peace when he gave me my name. I was born near Easter, 1966, in Mississippi. When I turned 33, my father said, it's your Jesus year. You're the same age he was when he died. It was spring, the hills green in Mississippi. I know more than Joe Christmas did. Natasha is a Russian name, though I'm not. It means Christmas child, even in Mississippi. Now, when I was born... Um, the former governor was still monitoring interracial activity in the state. And in the Mississippi Department of Archives and History in Jackson, there's a file that even contains the letter my grandmother wrote to the local Gulfport newspaper requesting the printing of my parents' marriage announcement. Now, um, this next poem um, is a poem that comes out of that particular historical moment. My grandmother... Um, lived across the street from the Mount Olive Baptist Church, and the church did not have its own driveway. And so she would let them park the church bus in her driveway. And for that reason, it was possible for someone to think that uh, that plot of land belonged to the church. Now, at this time, my grandmother, um, uh, my mother and father and I were living briefly in my grandmother's house. And so um, the church was doing a voter registration drive to get um, disenfranchised African-American voters registered to vote. So we never knew for sure what this incident was really about. Incident. We tell the story every year, how we peered from the windows, shades drawn, though nothing really happened, the charred grass now green again. We peered from the windows, shades drawn, at the cross trussed like a Christmas tree, the charred grass still green. Then we darkened our rooms, lit the hurricane lamps. At the cross trussed like a Christmas tree, a few men gathered, white as angels in their gowns. We darkened our rooms and lit hurricane lamps, the wicks trembling in their fonts of oil. It seemed the angels had gathered, white men in their gowns. When they were done, they left quietly. No one came. The wicks trembled all night in their fonts of oil. By morning, the flames had all dimmed. When they were done, the men left quietly. No one came. Nothing really happened. By morning, all the flames had dimmed. We tell the story every year.
Thank you. Southern Gothic. I have lain down into 1970, into the bed my parents will share for only a few more years. Early evening, they have not yet turned from each other in sleep, their bodies curved, parentheses framing the separate lives they'll wake to. Dreaming, I am again the child with too many questions, the endless why and why and why my mother cannot answer, her mouth closed, a gesture toward her future, cold lips stitched shut. The lines in my young father's face deepen toward an expression of grief. I have come home from the schoolyard with the words that shadow us in this small southern town. Peckerwood and nigger lover, half-breed and zebra, words that take shape outside us. We're huddled on the tiny island of bed, quiet in the language of blood, the house unsteady on its cinder-block haunches, sinking deeper into the muck of ancestry. Oil lamps flicker around us, our shadows, dark glyphs on the wall, bigger and stranger than we are. Now, having grown up um, in the Deep South, one of the things that, that I've always thought was interesting because of our monuments um, and the way that um, for so many years history was represented um, in the naming of roads and bridges is that if you weren't from here, if you were, if you were visiting from another country uh, and you came to the South, based on the monuments, you might actually think that the South won the war. Some of the other misapprehensions, um, you know, as a student um, in a public school in Georgia, uh, I had the moment of reading something in a textbook that seemed just a little off to me. Southern history. Before the war, they were happy, he said, quoting our textbook, this was senior year history class. The slaves were clothed, fed, and better off under a master's care. I watched the words blur on the page. No one raised a hand, disagreed, not even me. It was late. We still had reconstruction to cover before the test. And luckily, three hours of watching gone with the wind. History, the teacher said, of the old South, a true account of how things were back then. On screen, a slave stood big as life, big mouth, bucked eyes, our textbooks grinning proof, a lie my teacher guarded, silent, so did I. I think because of that, because of the monuments and, and the ways that at that point we learned History. I mean, the Daughters of the Confederacy were brilliant in, in their recreation of a way to remember the past, um, to commission the writing of the textbooks, to commission the erecting of all of those monuments and the namings of all of those roads and bridges. I was just thinking the other day that, you know, growing up in Atlanta, uh, Lester Maddox was still a popular figure. Um, and, and the sense of psychological exile that is created by growing up a place in a place um, in which your history seems to be erased from the landscape. 
And in this book, I've tried to tell a fuller version of American history, not to subjugate or erase another one. And I think the, the perfect metaphor for it is um, what you see on the cover of this book. This is a photograph taken from the diary of that colonel who was stationed on Ship Island. He confiscated the diary from the home of a Confederate, and because of a paper shortage, he had to cross-write over entries that were already there. So when you look at the journal, you see the page, it goes one way, and you turn it, and there's writing over it. And it seemed to me a perfect metaphor for the intersections of North and South, black and white, slave and free. This next poem begins with an epigraph from E.O. Wilson that reads, Homo sapiens is the only species to suffer psychological exile. South. I return to a stand of pines, bone-thin phalanx flanking the roadside, tangle of understory, a dialectic of dark and light, and magnolias blossoming like afterthought, each flower a surrender, white flags draped among the branches. I return to land's end, the swath of coast clear-cut and buried in sand, mangrove, live oak, gulf weed raised and replaced by thin palms, palmettos, symbols of victory or defiance, over and over, marking this vanquished land. I returned to a field of cotton, hallowed ground as slave legend goes, each bowl holding the ghosts of generations, those who measured their days by the heft of sacks and links of rows, who sweat flecked the cotton plants still sewn into our clothes. I returned to a country battlefield where colored troops fought and died, Port Hudson where their bodies swelled and blackened beneath the sun, unburied until earth's green sheet pulled over them, unmarked by any headstones. Where the roads, buildings, and monuments are named to honor the Confederacy, where that old flag still hangs, I return to Mississippi, state that made a crime of me, mulatto, half-breed, native, in my native land, this place, they'll bury me. I'm going to finish up now with um, a couple of poems from my most recent collection, Thrall. Thrall is a book about knowledge, the ongoing presence of the past, and a meditation on the difficult history of ideas about racial difference across time and space, notions that were codified in the classifications of the Enlightenment, of all things, which created a language of supremacy and inferiority still manifest not only in the larger public discourse, but also in the smaller, intimate interactions within families as with my own white father. Always when I'm working, I keep in the back of my head Yeats's words, of the quarrel with others we make rhetoric, but of the quarrel with ourselves, poetry. Elegy for my father. I think by now the river must be thick with salmon. Late August, I imagine it as it was that morning, drizzle needling the surface, mist at the banks like a net settling around us, everything damp and shining. 
That morning, awkward and heavy in our hip waders, we stalked into the current and found our places, you upstream a few yards and out far deeper. You must remember how the river seeped in over your boots and you grew heavier with that defeat. All day I kept turning to watch you, how first you mimed our guides casting, then cast your invisible line, slicing the sky between us. And later, rod in hand, how you tried again and again to find that perfect arc, flight of an insect skimming the river's surface. Perhaps you recall I cast my line and reeled in two small trout we could not keep. Because I had to release them, I confess, I thought about the past, working the hooks loose, the fish writhing in my hands, each one slipping away before I could let go. I can tell you now that I tried to take it all in, record it for an elegy I'd write one day when the time came. Your daughter, I was that ruthless. What does it matter if I tell you I learned to be? You kept casting your line, and when it did not come back empty, it was tangled with mine. Some nights, dreaming, I step again into the small boat that carried us out and watch the bank receding, my back to where I know we are headed. This book began with a consideration of the Mexican Costa paintings, uh, and the Mexican Costa paintings represented the mixed blood unions that were taking place in colonial Mexico across the 18th century. They were interesting to me because they were always done in series of 16. They began with the white Spaniard father and then um, all the different mixtures and the taxonomies of the people were written right there on the painting as well. I was also interested in the idea um, that... Um, if you were a mixed blood, your name was recorded at birth in the book of Costas, and there you stayed. And also that there was a belief that indigenous blood over a few generations could be purified back to whiteness, but that the taint of African blood was irreversible. So you had names like mulatto returning backwards, hold yourself in midair, and I don't understand you. This is not so unfamiliar when we think of some of the taxonomies that we've created right here in the U.S., many of them uh, in New Orleans. This is after a series by Juan Rodriguez Suarez, circa 1715. Taxonomy. One, de Espanol y de India produce mestizo. The canvas is a leaden sky behind them, heavy with words, gold letters inscribing an equation of blood. This plus this equals this as if a contract with nature or a museum label, ethnographic, precise. See how the father's hand beneath its crown of lace curls around his daughter's head. She's nearly fair as he is. Calidad, see it in the brooch at her collar, the lace framing her face. An infant, she is born over the servant's left shoulder, bound to him by a sling, the plain blue cloth knotted at his throat. 
If the father, his hand on her skull, divines, as the physiognomist does, the mysteries of her character, discursive, legible on her light flesh, in the soft curl of her hair, we cannot know it. So gentle the eye he turns toward her. The mother, glancing sideways toward him, the scarf on her head, white as his face, his powdered wig, gestures with one hand a shape like the letter C. C, she seems to say, what we have made. The servant, still a child, cranes his neck, turns his face up toward all of them. He is dark as history, origin of the word native, the weight of blood, a pale mistress on his back, heavier every year. 2. The Espanol y Negra produce mulatto. Still, the centuries have not dulled the sullenness of the child's expression. If there is light inside him, it does not shine through the paint that holds his face in profile, his domed forehead, eyes nearly closed beneath a heavy brow. Though inside, the boy's father stands in his cloak and hat. It's as if he's just come in or that he's leaving. We see him transient, rolling a cigarette, myopic, his eyelids drawn against the child passing before him. At the stove, the boy's mother contorts, watchful, her neck twisting on its spine, red beads yoked at her throat like a necklace of blood, her face so black she nearly disappears into the canvas, the dark wall upon which we see the words that name them. What should we make of any of this? Remove the words above their heads, put something else in place of the child, a table, perhaps, upon which the man might set his hat, or a dog upon which to bestow the blessing of his touch. And the story changes. The boy is a palimpsest of paint, layers of color, history rendering him that precise shade of in-between. Before this, he was nothing, blank canvas, before image or word, before a last brushstroke fixed him in his place. 3. The Espanol y Mestiza produce Castiza. How not to see in this gesture the mind of the colony? In the mother's arms, the child hinged at her womb, dark cradle of mixed blood, call it Mexico, turns toward the father, reaching to him as if back to Spain, to the promise of blood alchemy, three easy steps to purity. From a Spaniard and an Indian, a mestizo. From a mestizo and a Spaniard, a castizo. From a castizo and a Spaniard, a Spaniard. We see her here, one generation away, nearly slipping her mother's careful grip. 4. The Book of Castas Call it the catalog of mixed bloods, or the book of not, not Spaniard, not white, but mulatto returning backwards, or hold yourself in midair, and the morisca, the lobo, the chino, sambo, albino, and the no te entiendo, the I don't understand you, 
Guidebook to the colony, record of each crossed birth, it is the typology of taint, of stain, blemish, sullying spot, that which can be purified, that which cannot, Canaan's black fate. How like a dirty joke it seems. What do you call that space between the dark geographies of sex? Call it the taint, as in, it taint one and it taint the other. Illicit and yet naming still what is between. Between her parents, the child, mulatto returning backwards, cannot slip their hold. The triptych their bodies make, in paint, in blood, her name, written down in the book of castas, all her kind, in thrall, to a word. I'm going to finish up now with two last poems. This is a short poem, and it's about a photograph that I bet many of you have seen from Robert Frank's series, The Americans. I like to think of this poem as my response to the help. Help, 1968. When I see Frank's photograph of a white infant in the dark arms of a woman who must be the maid, I think of my mother and the year we spent alone, my father at sea. The woman stands in profile, back against a wall, holding her charge, their faces side by side, the look on the child's face strangely prescient, a tiny furrow in the space between her brows. Neither of them looks toward the camera, nor do they look at each other. That year, when my mother took me for walks, she was mistaken again and again for my maid. Years later, she told me she'd say I was her daughter, and each time strangers would stare in disbelief, then empty the change from their pockets. Now I think of the betrayals of flesh, how she must have tried to make of her face an inscrutable mask and hold it there, as they made their small offerings, pressing coins into my hands. How, like the woman in the photograph, she must have seemed, carrying me each day, white in her arms, as if she were a prop, a black backdrop, the dark foil in this American story. And this last poem is actually the last poem I wrote for the book, and it is one that... I knew I had to complete in order to finish the book. My father took me to Monticello um, over 20 years ago, and a lot of things had changed uh, in Mo at Monticello in those 20 years, and so I knew I had to take my father back there. 20 years ago, there wasn't any mention of, of Sally Hemings, um, but now, uh, now that the Jefferson uh, Foundation uh, has, you know, uh, has a statement that the docent will say when you go into the museum that um, Thomas Jefferson is uh, responsible for fathering at least two of Sally Hemings' children. My father and I debated these issues for years, and uh, it was so much fun uh, at Christmas and birthdays to send him Annette Gordon-Reed's books <laughs> and finally win that argument. Enlightenment. 
In the portrait of Jefferson that hangs at Monticello, he is rendered two-toned, his forehead white with illumination, a lit bulb, the rest of his face in shadow, darkened as if the artist meant to contrast his bright knowledge, its dark subtext. By 1805, when Jefferson sat for the portrait, he was already linked to an affair with his slave. Against a backdrop blue and ethereal, a wash of paint that seems to hold him in relief, Jefferson gazes out across the centuries, his lips fixed as if he's just uttered some final word. The first time I saw the painting, I listened as my father explained the contradictions, how Jefferson hated slavery, though, out of necessity, my father said, had to own slaves. That his moral philosophy meant he could not have fathered those children. Would have been impossible, my father said. For years, we debated the distance between word and deed. I'd follow my father from book to book, gathering citations, listen as he named, like a field guide to Virginia, each flower and tree and bird, as if to prove... A man's pursuit of knowledge is greater than his shortcomings, the limits of his vision. I did not know then the subtext of our story, that my father could imagine Jefferson's words made flesh in my flesh, the improvement of the blacks in body and mind in the first instance of their mixture with the whites, or that my father could believe he'd made me better. When I think of this now, I see how the past holds us captive, its beautiful ruin etched on the mind's eye. My young father, a rough outline of the old man he's become, needing to show me the better measure of his heart, an equation writ large at Monticello. That was years ago. Now we take in how much has changed. Talk of Sally Hemings, someone asking, how white was she? Parsing the fractions as if to name what made her worthy of Jefferson's attentions. A near-white quadroon mistress, not a plain black slave. Imagine stepping back into the past, our guide tells us then, and I can't resist whispering to my father, this is where we split up. I'll head around to the back. <laughs> when he laughs, I know he's grateful I've made a joke of it. This history that links us, white father, black daughter, even as it renders us other to each other. Thank you.